Bienvenidos and welcome to the Jacobin Sports Show. This is episode 5. I am Matthew Miranda, joined as always by Jonah Birch. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Jacobin Sports, and you can also email us with any thoughts or questions at jacobinsports at gmail.com. Jonah, how is your inner Bostonian feeling today after yet another Super Bowl win for Tom Brady and Rob freaking Gronkowski? I got to be honest, you know, it, it makes me very happy. I, you know, I, I know we're, we're a sick people because of our love of our deep love of Tom Brady. Uh, but <laughs> yes. I, I think almost everyone was rooting for him. Now, Boston Sports Radio, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday. Yesterday, on Monday, I was listening and it was a, it was a real shit show, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what a disaster. Why did we let him go? What is Belichick doing? But, uh, but overall, you know, we love TB12. It's hard to let go. To know that there's any angst up in Boston is possibly the only saving grace for me. Always angst. <laughs> so as we, as most of the world knows by now, Tampa Bay was victorious in a unexpected blowout over the Kansas City Chiefs of a game that was really barely competitive. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't a lot to notice or talk about from the game. Jonah, I'm curious... What stood out to you on the field or in the larger narrative? I mean, what happened to Kansas City? What a what a disaster. They they fell apart. And I kept expecting them to make a comeback. Mm. And it didn't happen. And obviously they were having big offensive line issues. And it seems like Mahomes is hurt. He just had a surgery, I think, for his uh, turf toe. You know, but credit to the Tampa defense. They were they were unbelievable, really dominant. I don't think I've seen anyone hold uh, hold Kansas City in check like that. The offense, I mean, Hill did nothing. Tyreek Hill did basically nothing during the game. Basically nothing. Yeah, no big plays, uh, and it was uh, that was the most surprising part. I I think the New York City region just adored watching former Jet coach Todd Bowles and long time long time ago Giant Jason Pierre-Paul helping to lead. Their team to a Super Bowl victory while the Jets and Giants are not in that vicinity. I was struck early on at how and you talked about kind of waiting for Kansas City to make a run at the end, and they still certainly had chances. There were a lot of drops. Um, I was very struck in the beginning of the game at how for a while how it felt to me like, and I think it was because of my bias coming in, I just kept waiting for Kansas City to take off. And like Tampa had to punt on their first few possessions. Hill had a touchdown go, I think, off his face. There was another pass. There were a couple possible touchdowns early on that might have made a difference. Um, every time Kansas City did something that seemed like here it comes, there was the the second punt that they that they had out of their own end zone. And after they stopped Tampa on the fourth and one, they had to to punt out and you know, it was a the guy, the kicker, the punter dropped the snap, but he still got off like a 56 yard punt. And uh, Pringle made a great tackle, but then there was a penalty. So it came back. I was really struck at just watching the Chiefs feel like a machine that I, you know, when you're trying to start your car over and over and you think you have it this time and you think you have it. And it just never got started. And by the, and it just never got started. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because. Obviously, afterwards, there was a lot of discussion about the defensive penalties on the on the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. Um, those all happened when the Bucks had the ball. I, 
you know, you can't blame the refs for <laughs> what was going on with that offense, obviously. No. And right. You know, you, you kept expecting them after what they did last year in the playoffs, all those comebacks, those huge deficits, and then just tearing it up in the fourth quarter, mm-hmm. you expected them to mount this big comeback. And uh, obviously, you know, it didn't happen and you could see problems that they weren't quite the same offense. You could see it down the stretch this year. Uh, but then, you know, with what they did to the Bills in the AFC Championship, I just thought they were back, you know, that this was Kansas City of last year. Yep. And uh, clearly it didn't happen, right? You know. Yeah. Whereas on the other end of things, I was very impressed that Tampa Bay, and I, I hate when you see this in a game, it seems to be something losing teams do a lot. A losing team will be playing against a great team. The Jets have always been, for some reason, the team that does this. They'll, they'll get down the field. There's like a fourth and one, a fourth from and and from inside the ten or the five, and they'll kick a field goal, and you get the old axiom that like you're not going to beat this team with field goals. I loved the Tampa, even though they didn't succeed on the fourth and goal, that they went for it, and near the end of the half when um, Brady threw what was arguably an uncatchable bomb to Mike Evans, but he, they tried, and they got the pass interference call, and that led to the the touchdown. And that's why Tampa Bay was up at the half, you know, by double digits instead of less than a touchdown. And I, I loved seeing them, you know, they were there, they win for it, and it, it paid off. Whereas Kansas City struck me as that other sports axiom where are you playing your game or are you adjusting to your opponent? Right. They seemed intent on playing their game, even though the juice just was not there. Yep. Yeah. They kept forcing the ball downfield Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, all the pressure on, on Mahomes, uh, you know, he was running around so much trying to make that happen. And and obviously it wasn't there. Yeah. It felt like they were kind of waiting for something and it just, it slipped out of, out of their hands. Now, you know, I got to say that drive at the end, the Tom Brady throw on the touchdown was of the end of the first half. It was so amazing. Such vintage Tom Brady. What a, (laughs) backbreaker yep. you know yep they did it two weeks um, in a row they did it to the two games in a row did it to green bay right and yeah you, i mean that just that was deflating had to be yeah. deflating yeah no no pun intended right you know <laughs> i of course would not be making a joke about the the patriots it was a great drive and it was amazing yep. seeing gronk get going you know his best game of the season, I think. Yeah, I know there's a million prop bets you can make, and I, I don't know if anyone out there had one where you could bet on Gronkowski's production basically exceeding Kelsey's. Kelsey had more yards receiving, I believe. Um, or no, at least in the first half, Kelsey had five receptions for 40, 55 for 47. Um, Gronk was five for 42, but had two touchdowns. Like, if you come into a game like this and you're the, you're the Bucks and you can sign up for... Yeah, Gronkowski is going to exceed Kelsey, and Hill's really not going to, as you said, has nothing going. The pressure they had on Mahomes all day, whether blitzing, whether rushing, and remarkable how many plays he almost made scrambling around when he looked like he had no chance of anything. There was a play where in the fourth he scrambled, he was about to go down for a sack near the sideline, and he still somehow threw it 30 yards to the back of the end zone, and Pringle almost had it with one hand. Yeah. Um, if sure. you know, it reminds me. A lot of people were comparing this Super Bowl to the Bills and Giants from 1990, and in that game, even though Buffalo lost, Thurman Thomas had an astonishing game, and, and I think still won Super Bowl MVP or should have won, even though the Bills lost. 
to go to Sanderson and won it. Nice Even though the Chiefs lost and lost badly, I I came out of that game with even more wonder for Mahomes. Just I don't know how bad the blowout would have been if that had been any quarterback in the league other than him. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it, he's he's an amazing athlete. He's the best quarterback in football. Um, yeah. You know, and and maybe our expectations for him are 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 too high, given the 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 mess that the, his team was in. It was too much to ask him to 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 pull that off. Um, but I, you know, I think they'll come back next year, and probably they they got to be the favorite to go back to the Super Bowl um, mm-hmm. again, right? Yeah, according to Vegas, they are. Speaking of, maybe our expectations are too high. A fan ran on the field in the game, and as is TV hegemony, the TV broadcasters, the the networks refuse to show it because supposedly this will encourage fans from running on the field, even though it's literally been happening forever despite the lack of of coverage. And they actually – they were showing Brady was like peeking out from the side. This fan was running towards the end zone. There's a wonderful series of photos of security like just stopping him just short. And – I feel like if we're going to, you know, occasionally talk about, you know, politics and powers for the people on the show, I want to see the TV networks televising it when a fan runs on the field. And I wonder, do you feel the same way? I feel ripped off every time they show somebody and the camera will not move. And it's such a tease. They talk about it. Jim Nance is joking about it. I want to see what's happening. Am I, am I crazy about this? No, am no, I encouraging no. delinquency? I'm, t- I'm completely with you. Yeah. I, you know, th- did you hear the radio broadcast? I did not. Of uh, Kevin Harlan. Oh, going, I- pull your pants up, you know. <laughs> and you're like, what am I missing here? Yes. Right. You know, yeah. I, show the world that, you know, it, 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 if we could have Nipplegate, you Same. know, uh, at the Super Bowl halftime show, which you know, we could definitely uh, see uh, see this guy pulling his pants down. Yeah, so I, I, I'm totally with you. Would have been you easily know. the most entertaining part of the evening without question. Much better than the halftime show. That would have been way, way better than the halftime show. So I, uh, um, I will admit that I, I did not watch the halftime show. I'm of the age where I'm very comfortable making that decision. The poor weekend, man. I don't know what happened. I don't know what the deal was with this <laughs> show, but I've heard nothing but, and I don't know if this is, if this is just kind of how we haze, our way through history. Like I always hear people complaining that this year, like that the commercials have gone downhill. And I can tell you from the nineties, like they haven't, the commercials are no better or worse than they were back in the day. But people like to say that. And people always seem to lament the halftime artist. And my appreciation for it is if, if only that the weekend has given us an immediate meme that I've seen all over social media that he's running through what appears to be a, a golden labyrinth unsure of where he is he, he looked lost he you know where where's he going it's very confusing he, he still may not you be know there. it's a metaphor for for life under you know under covid <laughs> perhaps I, i'm trying to think of of the uh if i've ever seen a good super bowl halftime show i think prince prince was good prince did a good one i i can't think of a another one that that sticks out to me so uh, I'll, I'll be honest the game know. is always for me so long even when i was a kid it's so long that I almost never watched the Super Bowl halftime show because I, it's like a five-hour production. Like when they when they get to halftime, I just want to go and and do anything else besides sit longer and usually watch. Especially since Nipplegate, is generally very neutered, uninspired selection. Like give me, give me someone controversial or someone exciting or, or I don't know, man. 
Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Something to liven things up. It's, it's really true. You yeah. need a break, right. You know, yeah. from, from the game. Um, now go ahead. in terms of, of post game storylines. Mm. So obviously for, for weeks and months, there's been that, what does this say about Belichick and Brady? And, uh, which is just a horrible discussion in my mind with no answer, uh, a ridiculous exercise and, yes. uh, you know, bullshit pontificating. But, uh, but now it's, is Tom Brady the greatest athlete of all time? And uh, if he's not, who is, which again, it just seems like an absurd, absurd question to ask. Uh, what are your thoughts? Tom Brady goat of all goats. Well, first, I just want to point out that the bullshit prognosticators will have even more conspiracy theories to work with because with the win led by Brady, um, Bruce Arians now replaces Bill Belichick as the oldest coach ever to win a Super Bowl. So if you really want to get it twisted, was Brady inspired to win it for Arians to get Belichick out of the record book to prove, like, whatever, conspiratorial nonsense? I don't think Tom Brady is the greatest athlete in his locker room. I think if we mean most impactful that's a conversation that can be had. And I still think that football players are probably inherently at a disadvantage in that kind of a, of a, of a debate because Tom Brady doesn't do most of the athletic work that goes into his success. He's not defending the enormous athletic people trying to kill him. He's not running the routes. He's not making the cuts. I, I assume the question means, is he the most impactful or most successful athlete? And I have to recuse myself from this conversation because I don't think he is. If you're asking who is the, the greatest athlete I've seen of my lifetime, just in terms of pure athlete, it probably has to be Bo Jackson because he's the only person I've seen who's been excellent at multiple professional sports. Deion Sanders was a, a fine baseball player, but not dominant. Yeah. I know Danny Ainge played multiple. He played for, the, I think the Blue Jays drafted him. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Bo Jackson. Not Bo Jackson, though. Not Bo Jackson. He was not Bo Jackson. Never going to confuse him with Bo Jackson. Unlikely. Um I would, I would have to say Bo Jackson. I would have to say, to me, it's more impressive what someone like, by far, LeBron James or Serena Williams has done over Tom Brady. And I don't like to compare individual and, and team sports, but I think at least in the case of, if the argument for LeBron, LeBron is doing it, I, I think it's a more physically taxing job to be playing full court basketball for more than half your life than to be, of course, obviously the NFL is the most you know dangerous sport as far as injury, but I just think when, when you watch LeBron today, the fact that he at this point doesn't look significantly different athletically than he did in his prime, to me is, is unprecedented. And for Serena Williams to be doing what she's done as long as she has, at the level that she has, I have my own biases and issues with Brady, so maybe that's coloring my, my point of view. What about you? Where do you put Tom Brady in terms of greatness or just in terms of impact or success? I mean, first of all, obviously, it's an impossible question. And yeah. You have to establish the – we're talking about American athletes, clear, clearly, yes. right? Or people who yes, play yes. sports that are popular in the United States. You know, and then the greatest is what – the as you're saying, the criteria, What you know, if cultural, social impact, you could definitely say Muhammad Ali. Right. You know – complete domination of a sport, you know, for uh, an extended period of time, Tiger Woods or 
I would say Michael Jordan, uh, just kind of head and shoulders above everyone else in that sport for a period of time. And then, yeah, LeBron is the greatest athlete. He's, he's the most impressive athlete I've ever seen live. Uh, and like you're saying, his longevity is incredible. Now, just to say, different sport, different position. Tom Brady is 43. LeBron is, is what? He's 36, 36 37 think, now. Yeah. 43 used to be an age reserved in sports for uh, knuckleball pitchers and hockey players, right? You know, right. Uh, just very few you know, athletes ever played at a high level and certainly in, in um, football or basketball. And what he's done is unbelievable. I mean, his, his career has gotten better as he's gotten older and he's had so many peaks and so many high moments, you know, when it comes to modern American sports, I think he's accomplished something that's unique. Only LeBron can, can rival his longevity. He's like LeBron crossed with Jordan, right? <laughs> You know, that's fair. Just Jordan's complete domination of a sport for a period of time with LeBron's longevity when it comes to greatness. I have to now ask you a question that that may hit you in a place that hurts, but I have to ask the question because hearing all the talk of Brady the last couple of days, it's it just for me it's been an inescapable trigger. When I hear someone talking about it is astonishing that this athlete is performing at at this level, at this age, my brain always goes back to baseball and goes back to what players were doing in the late 90s and early 2000s, particularly players like um, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, who were doing impossible feats in their 40s at an age where everyone there in their sport is retired or on their last legs. Is there any part of you that wonders, is everything that I'm seeing with Tom Brady on the level? Oh, you know, I knew you were going to go there. I have to ask him. I, I was waiting to see where this is going. <laughs> Ew, he has his own, like, nutrition program, you know, like. Who knows? Um, yeah. Would you, would, okay, let me let me put it to you this way then instead. If five years from now there was any kind of stories leaking, just not as a, not as a Brady fan, not as a, a Boston fan, as a sports fan in general who was seen in all kinds of sports, you know, people doing all kinds of things to get ahead. Does Jonah, the the pure lover of sport, believe it's just different with this guy? Or does Jonah, the world-weary cynic, think, you know what, I I can't doubt anything. Like, anything is possible at this point. At a certain point, when you have so much money, such incredible resources, so much medical technology at your disposal, you spend so much time working on and thinking about your, your body. A little bit, it's like, what's the difference, you know, what's the difference between spending millions, you know, on barometric chambers and uh, platelet injections. Right, and, right. you know, you have full-time chefs and, uh, and uh, you know, and, and blood doping. Uh, do I think Tom Brady is on steroids? No, I don't, but who knows? Honestly, I, I have no idea. Would it ruin it for me? No, it absolutely would not. The main reason it would, it would piss me off is because I know all the fans of all the other teams would use it to try and discredit, you know, everything that uh, that Tom Brady did over the the last couple of decades. Everyone would get up on their high horse, and it would just be an insufferable course. Mm-hmm. But mainly, I, I just think this is what cajillionaires who I, I just made that word up. Cajillionaires. It works. Who uh, uh, the guy has his own uh, 
you know, health cult. It does. <laughs> you know, it so does. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, probably, if we're, uh, him, you know, where it centers. Uh, I'm thinking, by the way, of signing up for my own TB12, uh, you know, program, workout regimen. I'm and, thinking uh, of signing up for it. The guy looks great. The guy looks amazing. Yeah. He looks he, better he now looks than amazing. he did 10 years ago. Um, yeah, sure. Let me try to... to to close by taking it to close on my end at least uh, by taking it to a happier place perhaps for you, Kansas City not unexpectedly had the highest uh, rating and market rating for viewership of fifty nine point nine rating. Tampa Bay was third. Interestingly enough, second was the great metropolis of Boston, Massachusetts. I had no idea somehow that it was that big a deal that. Is Tom Brady bigger than Larry Bird? Is he bigger than 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 oh, um, Bobby? H- Where is Tom Brady now in the Boston sports pantheon? Doing this outside I mean, of Boston, he, even. Yeah, he definitely. Uh, uh, it's funny because uh, athletes and their profile, uh, their Boston profile, it rise and fall. You know, there was a time when I thought some of the Red Sox greats of the 20 years ago, Pedro Martinez and mm-hmm. Annie Ramirez and obviously big poppy. Uh, no one would surpass them, but Tom Brady surpasses anything that's happened in Boston, you know, dating back to the American revolution, nothing <laughs> more important than Tom Brady has happened. Uh, and, you know, he certainly is, um, you know, he, he uh, exceeds any of the Celtics great, greats including bird mm-hmm. uh just in terms of his uh his reputation and clearly he's still he's still beloved you know he's beloved and him and gronk both i don't know man i you know you after 20 years of watching someone just destroy the league and rooting for them yeah you have a real emotional investment in their uh their success even when they move on so he tom brady is still still in our hearts and no, that does not mean that everyone in Boston likes Donald Trump. You know, I saw that on Twitter. <laughs> uh, what is this? People, yeah, people are like, oh, that's because everyone in, in Boston is a MAGA voter. Not true. The opposite. You know, you take that back, t- Twitter slanders. <laughs> anyway. It's probably just some, some angry Philadelphians from last week trying to get back at you. For sure. Second down, 20, 5.03 to go. Someone has run on the field. Some guy with a brawl. And now he's not being chased. He's running down the middle of the 40. Arms in the air and a victory salute. He's pulling down his pants. Put up your pants, my man. Pull up those pants. He's being chased to the 30. He breaks a tackle from a security guard. The 20, down the middle, the 10, the 5. He slides at the 1, and they converge on him at the goal line. Lord, now they're cuffing him. But pull up his drawers, whatever you do. 503 to go. Let me introduce our guest, and then we'll, we'll talk about what we're going to get into with her. Our guest is a writer for The Athletic. She covers the NFL as well as the National Women's Hockey League, the entire league and the local team, the Buffalo Buttes. She is also the co-author with Brittany De La Creta of Hail Mary, which is coming out in November about the rise and fall of the National Women's Football League. You can also read her coverage of the WNBA at courtside.substack.com, which she founded. And she, like me, knows firsthand the very specific joy of life and love in Buffalo, New York. I would like to welcome to today's program, very honored to have Lindsay D'Arcangelo. Lindsay, how are you doing? 
I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here today. We're hoping with Lindsay to to discuss um, the Super Bowl and WNBA free agency and a bit about her book, Hail Mary. So unlike the Chiefs, let's not wait to get started and let's dive right into the Super Bowl discussion. Uh, Lindsay, what stood out to you the most from the game Sunday, either defying your expectations or something that just caught your eye or your mind? I don't know what it was leading up to the Super Bowl, but there was just this lack of enthusiasm, mm-hmm. not just from me, but in talking to friends and family. And just I felt like the whole vibe around it was just kind of lackluster. The Super Bowl itself, I mean, it was eh. It's probably one of the more boring Super Bowls I've seen in my lifetime. I have a, a twin brother and an older brother, and they were both texting me saying the, the Bills could have <laughs> could have given the, the Bucks a better game. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That remains to be seen. But... Yeah, you know, I'm, you know, great for Tom Brady. It's something we've seen before. I, you know, I was not surprised by it. It's incredible that he was able to hop to another team and then make it back to the Super Bowl and win again. You know, I mean, that that's something to marvel at. But the game itself, it was kind of, it was just kind of eh for me. As a, a Buffalo Bills writer and fan, I'm presuming growing up, um, if Buffalo had made it to the Super Bowl, would you rather have had the opportunity to face Brady for the billionth time, or was more of you would more of you have felt like enough already? Like I don't want to see Tom Brady in a big spot anymore. Like give me give, give me the Packers. Well, I think the narrative would have been much more exciting, right? You know, the, the storylines, the, the coverage leading up to the, the Super Bowl, the talk of the Bills finally getting redemption or revenge or whatever you want to call it. I think all the hype would have been a lot more exciting. Mm-hmm. And I do think it would have been cool to to see this Bills team match up against him and 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 his his Bucks team and to see what have shaken out. I don't know that they would have won though. I I think uh, the Bucks just their defense, you know, is just way more physical than than ours is. Their offense, they just are were they just were really clicking at that point. So, but I think as far as a, a narrative goes, it would have been it would have been better overall. Yeah. Jonah, what about you? You know, so I'm just wondering, we were just talking for a second, the the debate that followed, is Tom Brady the greatest athlete of all time? Uh, and I love these kinds of questions because they can get Twitter going for days, months sometimes, and clearly there's no answer. But what, what do you think this means for his legacy? I mean, it just adds to it. His legacy was already cemented before the Super Bowl, right? I mean, he was already at legendary status. He was already at, you know, no question, Hall of Fame, first ballot Hall of Famer, probably the greatest quarterback ever to play the game. I mean, it's just it's ludicrous at this point, right? You know, it's just, it's, it's now, now it's gotten, it's gotten, it's gone beyond that. And um, it's just, like I, like I said earlier, it's just something to marvel at, really. Um, whether or not you like Tom Brady is kind of set aside because you have to appreciate and respect what he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about uh, KC? I mean, what a disastrous performance. You must feel like uh, you know, the Bills at least missed an opportunity, given how terribly they KC played in this game. Yeah, you know, what happened there? Like, Casey goes out and just runs all over us, you know, both literally and figuratively. I mean, they I, I think they had their best game against us. And whether they just couldn't muster up the same uh, game plan going into the Super Bowl, I don't know. But the thing about that game, too, is that the Bills, the first time they played them, 
back, I think it was in week six, they laid an egg. So you were hoping this time around they'd have a better game plan. Um, they do things a little differently and they just, they laid an egg again. And it, I think that's the most frustrating part because what we've seen all season from them, we know they could have played better. Um, so in the end, it is what it is. You know, the Chiefs won. They deserved, they deserved it. Um, we'll see what happens next season, you know, see if they could have learned a few things from, which I think they will. So Speaking of looking towards next season, uh, from the Buffalo perspective, what do you feel most excited about as far as the Bills' potential next season and heading into this offseason? And what is an issue that maybe you feel concerned or uncertainty about as far as the Bills moving forward? I think they're progressively getting better and with, with, with each season. And, and what Josh Allen does in the offseason, I mean, you know he's going to go and he's going to work on his fundamentals. He's going to keep working on his accuracy and all that. We've seen him improve year over year and make incredible strides from last season to, to this season. So I think we're pretty much set there. I'd like to get, see them get – I don't think they're going to retain John Brown. I'd like to see them get a bigger, more bodied receiver. They don't really have the size at the receiver position that they need. Um, they need they are in desperate need of a tight end. Mm-hmm. Knox is great, but he's got too many drops. Uh, they, need, they need more than just, just him on this roster. Linebackers, we got a great linebacking core. They're fast, but they're not really big. That's what the difference you saw with the with the Bucks. The Bucks, the way they attacked Kelsey, Travis Kelsey off the line, they they'd hit him, get him off his route. I mean, he just couldn't get into rhythm. We let him run free. And our D-line. We need, <laughs> our D-line needs help. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. we we rarely got pressure on quarterbacks. We need we need some size. We need a we need a defensive tackle like yesterday. So that's what where I'd like difference? to see some improvement. What changed from last year to this season? Because Buffalo last year, I, I think, had a, a real top-rated defense. I think this year they ended up maybe around number 10, which isn't bad. But was there something obvious in terms of personnel or in terms of scheme that seemed different from one season to the next? Uh, I think Star Latoue not playing this season was mm-hmm. a factor. Um, that size that, that we didn't have. Um, and towards the end of the season last season, the D, the D started to uh, implode especially against the run game. So um, I think they, they shored some things up in that regard this season, but we definitely still have some pieces. Mm-hmm. Another storyline that came out of the game that was probably more interesting than the game itself was the history of Sarah Thomas becoming the first woman to officiate during a Super Bowl. Thomas has been an official now, I think, for five or six seasons in the league. Um, and there's been... More growth in the NFL in terms of women in positions on the field. Tampa Bay now has two female Super Bowl champions on their coaching staff. Lori Locus, who's a defensive line assistant, and then Moral Javadafar, who is an assistant strength and conditioning coach. I'm curious, Lindsay, these are undoubtedly wonderful um, accomplishments and hopefully trends, but I'm curious, I don't know if, if you even have this answer, whether this is the NFL and its teams expanding their horizons on their own, if there's outside you know programs or energies that are trying to push them towards a diversity and also i'm wondering are you confident that this is a trend given that the nfl like a lot of sports has has seen a, a regression in terms of minority head coaching hires um the rooney rule was put in place to try to help with that it certainly hasn't accomplished that and teams have obviously figured out um how to just treat that as a, a figurehead and go are you confident that there is enough inner and external energy to make this a trend or do you think 
you have to see it before you believe it. Yeah. Well, first I just want to say I, you know, I tweet, I made a tweet that I, that <laughs> it, it trended a bit and I got a little trouble from guys who were offended by that. I said that Sir Thomas was the coolest aspect of, uh, of the Super Bowl <laughs> and it wasn't the matchup between Brady and Mahomes. Right. And I stand by that. I think for me, mm-hmm. seeing her out there, especially when they kind of, you know, did a little zoom in and then, and then, the, the the announcers made a, a comment about it. You know that that's huge for every girl who loves the sport growing up to see that. I'm sorry, but the impact the impact is huge. You can't deny that. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the trend and and making strides, yes, I do think there's this is trending in the right direction. I've been writing about this for a long time, back when the NFL first started doing uh, like a symposium around the Super Bowl that uh, was for women. And who wanted to get involved in football, whether coaching, scouting, refing, what have you. And uh, there would be team personnel that would come to the symposium and then meet with, with different candidates. And then, you know, say like uh, Sean McDermott from the Buffalo Bills would meet with a candidate. And if the match felt right, he'd invite them to come in turn with the team in the summertime. And a lot of these positions turned into permanent mm. in the fall. So that's been a trend. I want to say it's been happening for about five years now, um, and they're gonna they're gonna keep doing it, from what I understand. Um, talking about uh, just the lack of pipeline that for women to get involved in football because we don't play at the youth level, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we don't play at the middle school or high school level. You have a handful of girls who maybe play as a kicker. Um, sometimes you see the rare quarterback on a high school team and that's it. What do you do? What do you do after high school? There's no, there's no college team you could play for Mm -hmm. the, the pipeline to get into these positions and these jobs doesn't exist. So how do you do it? That's the question. I don't give the NFL a lot of props for a lot of things, but I'm giving them props for this thing because they're trying to create that pipeline. Very cool. Very cool. And I can tell you watching the game, um, with my daughter that, when the camera found Sarah Thomas for the first time, she was far more interested in that than the Chiefs punter shanking yet another um, attempt. So uh, I think your tweet was a correct one, Lindsay. Um, let's shift from the Super Bowl to the WNBA, specifically free agency. I have a couple questions about it for you, starting with uh, the defending champs, the Seattle Storm. The Storm expects Sue Bird to return. I don't know if there's been an official announcement, but there seems to be a lean in that direction. And... I wanted to ask about that, and Natasha Howard received what's called the core designation. I'm not familiar with that terminology and you know, what it means. Can you tell myself and anyone in the audience who's unfamiliar with that what the core designation actually is? Yeah. Uh, first, Sue Bird, she is coming back cool. to Seattle. Okay. Um, cool. I, th- I think she signed a one-year deal. Um, there's no way she was going to leave Seattle. That's mm-hmm. She is to Seattle what Diana Taurasi is to Phoenix. Mm-hmm. That's where they got their start. They're of the the old guard where you start with the team and you finish with that team, especially considering they've been in, in the league since 2000, 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was no doubt that Super was going to return to Seattle. The core designation functions like a franchise tag in football, in NFL. So before free agency rules were kind of renegotiated last year, which is why you're seeing so much movement now in the WNBA, and it's great. It's great for the league. It's great for the players. It gives them more autonomy and all that. But you could be cored however many times. There was like an unle- endless amount of times you could be cored that a team could core you, and then 
if even if you were an unrestricted free agent, you couldn't negotiate mm. anywhere else. The core the core tag just made you, you know, only be able to negotiate with the team mm -hmm. that you're on. So what what they did is now as a WNBA player, you can only be cored. I think it's like three times in your career, and um, the the amount of times that uh, a WNBA team can core a player has been reduced. So it, it allows for more movement, as I said. But yeah, that's mm -hmm. that's what a core is. Cool. Thanks for that. Um... The runners-up last year, the Las Vegas Aces, have had a pretty busy offseason. They will welcome back two players who were out last season. Um, Liz Cambage, who had a medical exemption, and Kelsey Plum, who had a left Achilles injury. They also added Chelsea Gray, who Walt Frazier would refer to as a prolific disher and swisher. She can <laughs> score, she can pass. Do you think that the Aces have done enough to be considered the favorites and in going into next season, or do you have another team in mind that you would give that designation to? Well, it hasn't been affirmed yet that Liz Cambage is coming back. Oh, um, okay. That's kind of still up in the air. I think she possibly could be waiting. And knowing Liz, you know, she likes to wait to the last minute. Um, mm. She could possibly be waiting to see what shakes out, like how the season's going to look by the, mm. by, by summertime. Mm. But, um, yeah, Vegas has a ton of stars, right? With Kelsey Plum back, um, that's, that's huge for them. Having another prolific scorer like Gray. Um, especially since Kayla McBride left Vegas to go to Minnesota. So that opens up a spot for Gray. They have Angel McCautry. They have the reigning MVP in uh, Asia Wilson. So, yeah, Vegas, I mean, they're, they're going to compete every season. But my pick, and as far as because of free agency and what I'm looking at, is, is Chicago. Um, mm. You have Candace mm -hmm. Parker, who left L.A., the Sparks, and this is another, I was surprised, because like Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi, I thought she was going to stay in Seattle, mm -hmm. or I mean in uh, Los Angeles and finish her career there. Franchise legend. But um, yeah, she decided to leave, go home to Chicago, where she's from and where she where she played her high school mm -hmm. ball. And um, that roster in Chicago is just, whew, that's going to be tough to contend with, mm -hmm. for sure. Let me give you one last free agency question, and then um, I'll turn it over to Jonah. I was you know, saddened that your title favorite was not my team, which is, of course, the New York Liberty. Um, but that just shows that you're a rational person. Uh, the Liberty okay. head into this offseason. Um, they have the top pick in this year's draft, which could be um, Charlie Collier, who's a center from Texas. They will return last year's top overall pick, the amazing Sabrina Ionescu. And they also added last year's most improved player. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing her first name correctly, but it looks like Betnaija Laney. Um, formerly of the Atlanta Dream. Where do you think the Liberty could find themselves next season? Can this be a playoff team? Can this be a playoff team that makes any kind of noise? Or do you, do you think they're still too young and still a few pieces away from being able to make that kind of mark? No, I think they're they're definitely a middle-of-the-pack team. Um, I want to see how Sabrina looks when she comes back. But, I mean, she changes your whole... With You saw the difference for when she played to when she wasn't in it. She's, such, mm -hmm. she's just such a, a scorer and... Her energy on the court, I mean, it makes such a difference. But I, as far as the draft goes, they do need a, a center, someone who could body up. They just they don't really have that right now. So I think um, going for that in the draft would be in their um, best interest. And then having Laney, I mean, she's just one of those all-around hustle players. Uh, she just she had such a great year with Atlanta and just really showed what she's capable of. That's another option for for Sabrina. Kind of takes the the pressure off her to be to be like the main scorer 
so yeah, I definitely I, I see some good things for the for the Liberty this season, and I I, I think that, like I said, they're they're a middle of pack team, and we'll see how it comes together. Lindsay, I know that last year, uh, you know, a new collective bargaining agreement was signed between the players and the WNBA. Seems like it, it you know, included a, a big increase in in contracts. You know, I, I'm wondering what uh, the 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 terms of this agreement and you know just the the rules around salaries and mean for parity in the league in the WNBA. And I also am wondering how you would assess what you think about how the WNBA has done growing the game, expanding its brand, marketing its players, and what that says about women in basketball. You know what? Uh, the parity in the league is just, I mean, there's so much talent. You have this, this league, there's 144 players, right? 12 spots to each roster. That is so tiny compared to the amount of talent that is out there. Even players who've been in the league a couple of years um, come training camp, you look at some of these rosters and they're just going to have to, you know, work their tail off to beat out the competition. Um, every roster is almost like an all-star team. They could, you could literally start an expansion team in the WNBA today and have that team be able to co compete. That's how, that's nice. how much the talent is. But that's also, you know, you look at the college level and it's also coming from the college level, right? You don't, it's no longer just UConn and um, Tennessee where they used to be at or, or Notre Dame. There are a lot of good teams out there. There are a lot of good programs. You're seeing sort of the talent being spread out more. And the, and the talent level coming into the WNBA as a result of that is just, has, has just been, been so good. And in, in years past, I think it's probably the best it's ever been. So um, it's great for the league. It's great for people who are just tuning in now and just becoming aware of the WNBA or who hadn't given it a chance before. I mean, it's good basketball. It's fun basketball. It's exciting basketball. I just think the league itself needs to put more games on television, national television. That happened over the bubble this past season, and you saw like a 68% rise in viewership. It boggles my mind why they never did that before, why they've sort of been inching along. They added like 87 games last season to the national schedule, and it just, it just ballooned. So um, hopefully it keeps going in that direction, and they could see that you know if you show the game, that's how you grow the game. So. It's interesting how that lesson has to be relearned, apparently, when it comes to women's sports. It's you crazy. Know. It's crazy to me. Lindsay, I want to make sure that we are able to discuss um, your upcoming book a bit with you. It's called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. I admit I did not know there had been a National Women's Football League. And when I Google the term, there's a lot of things that come up that don't necessarily sound like what I think <laughs> you're talking about. So... Can you give us uh, just some background about how did you get into this project? When did the National Women's Football League begin? When did it end? Is there energy today for a new professional league? Um, just anything that you want to be able to share with us about that? Yeah, you won't find anything on Google. There's, there's nothing out there. Um, it, okay. Anytime I tell somebody what my book is about, uh, they, they say I didn't know there was a National Women's Football League. Um, the the concept started because of Brittany, who you mentioned in the intro, and I wanted to do a football book together because there just isn't one. And when I say football book, I'm saying like that in, involves women, like from all aspects, from the history of women in football to um, playing to leagues that are functioning today to commentators, analysts, refs, whatever. But it was too broad. So um, Brittany was actually working on, on an article and stumbled across the National Women's Football League from the 1970s 
And Brittany came to me and said, this is what we need to focus on. And if we can sort of zero in on this, I think this is it. I think we have something. So we started doing the research. We got the book deal, started doing the research. Everything we found is from old newspapers. Um, and wow. we got in touch with as many players as we could find from different teams who are now in their late 60s to early 70s. So that was a challenge. Basically, the National Women's Football League uh, started in 1974 officially and uh, ran for about 14 years. You know, at times, you know, it was kind of a fledgling league, but it lasted uh, until 1988. Uh, and different teams came and went. Overall, I think, I think we found... 19 different cities where teams were functioning. You have uh, a team called the Toledo Troopers who were, are considered the best team ever to play in women's football. They had a player named Linda Jefferson who had five straight seasons of over 1,000 yards and averaged 14.4 yards per carry. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah um, it was like Tecmo Bowl numbers. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, there were, I want to say, over 300 players that played. Obviously, we couldn't track them all down, but... Basically, this book gives you the history of women in football, how this league, what led to the, the league starting, um, how it got off the ground, the teams that were involved, the players that were involved, all the all the incredible side stories that that you know may add to any book, and then its demise and its legacy. There are football league, women's football leagues functioning today. There are at least five, but they're more like a amateur level, and plenty of leagues have come and gone since the early 2000s, I want to say like 1999. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, that's that's basically uh, what it's about. It's fascinating to hear you describe your research process because I was just talking to my partner about, you watch any movie up to like maybe the year 2000, and anytime somebody needs to find something, they go down to the library and they scroll <laughs> through the microfilm. Mm -hmm. And since then, that doesn't that doesn't exist. And I'm picturing you and Brittany having to like go down to your library and scroll through microfilm to get information on this. Link. Well, thanks to, thanks to technology, we didn't have to mess with microfiche. But um, you know, there are sites like newspapers.com just let you search old newspapers and get clippings awesome. and all that stuff. But it's really that's where we found the bulk of our information. Cool. And the book is available in November of this year. Yeah, November uh, 2021, this fall. Uh, hopefully, we'll have pre-orders available in the spring, and we're hoping to have our cover revealed soon. Cool. Well, Lindsay D'Arcangelo, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate having you here and hope to talk to you again sometime in the future. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. I appreciate the discussion. And, um, I, you know, anytime you want to chat, let me know. Thanks for yeah, joining. Thank you. Really yeah. appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Cool. Take care. Awesome. So that's all for today's episode. I want to again thank Lindsay D'Arcangelo from The Athletic for joining us and talking about the Super Bowl. Please remember to look out for uh, Lindsay's book with co-author Brittany De La Creta coming out in November of this year. It's called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. As always, our producer is Connor Gillies. And remember, you can follow the Jacobin Sports Show on Twitter at Jacobin Sports, and you can email any thoughts or questions or suggestions. We got a lovely PDF this week from uh, Joseph Reynoso detailing um, the connection between the unconscious and sports fandom. So the bar has been set high, but you can reach us at jacobinsports at gmail.com. And we hope you have a nice week and we will see you again in a week. So everybody take care. <laughs>